Let us now open God's holy word together. And in the first place, we're going to turn to the prophet Haggai. And we'll read chapter 1. And then we'll turn to Matthew chapter 3. And we'll read the verses 1 through 12. And after that, we'll turn to our text, which is in the book right after Haggai. That is from Zechariah chapter 1, the verses 1 through 6. So we begin then with the Word of God in the book of Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land, and the mountains on the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Let us turn now to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3, the verses 1 through 12. 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So far our reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Let us now turn to the book of Zechariah, where we have our text in the first six verses. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear or heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, Just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. After the sermon, let us sing from Psalm 27, the fourth stanza. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we tend to sum up important events in history by mentioning something like a year along with maybe a one-line or few-word description of why that particular time was important. You know, children, as they learn history, Western Europe, England, Canada, bound to learn somewhere along the line, 1066, the Battle of Hastings, when William the Conqueror 
conquered England. Or you mention 1517, and all you have to do is say 95 Theses or Martin Luther, and right away you get this whole picture in your mind of how important that particular year was in terms of starting the Great Reformation of the Church. Mention 1914, and then you have World War I starting. And no doubt in the future, you know, you just have to mention 2020, COVID, and right away you get the whole picture in your mind of what particular year, all the difficulties, all the, the tension, and also all the impact for our life that we have experienced in that particular year. But now what have I said the year 520 BC? Would you consider that a memorable year? You know, 520 BC, that, that, that's 2,540 years ago. You might think, well, what happened back then that would make that particular year memorable for us? Well, brothers and sisters, 520 BC takes us to the time of the prophets like Haggai and Zechariah. Now, again, you might think, well, yeah, so what? You know, they're kind of tucked in towards the back of the Old Testament. Is that really so important? But really, we should understand when we start to look at these particular prophets, obviously they were contemporaries, in a period of about six months, there was what we might call like a supernova of revelation. Because we have four prophecies from the mouth of Haggai in two chapters, and, and two from the mouth of Zechariah in six chapters. And that's more chapters dealing with a very brief period of time, a few months' time, than all the chapters that actually speak about the birth of our Savior. Now this flash of revelation, along with what the Lord also revealed to Zechariah two years later, which is found in the second half of the book of Zechariah, obviously is significant because it is quoted directly at least 11 times in the New Testament, and someone else figured out there are at least 64 allusions to the words of Zechariah in the New Testament. So it's worthwhile to turn our attention once in a while to a book like Zechariah. And, and you could say, look at the gospel according to Zechariah. And we can do that. We can call it the gospel according to Zechariah because all of Scripture is gospel. All is about the good news of God's kingdom coming through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you look at the big picture of Zechariah, Zechariah is all about the coming of God's kingdom. But first, the first verses contain a call to repent. And we hear that in the words of verse 3. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Indeed, you could say the gospel begins with a call for a heartfelt turning to God. And to impress this upon the heart of all of us, I proclaim to you, Zechariah's opening words impress on us that the message of the kingdom begins with a call for heartfelt turning to God. And we see this as we consider, first of all, the context of this call, secondly, the warning with this call, and then finally, the permanence of this call. So Zechariah's opening words impress on us that the message of the kingdom begins with a call for a heartfelt turning to God. And we begin 
first of all, with the context of this call. We've gotten, of course, general picture, but it's helpful to, to spend a bit more time on it. We said 520 BC, but what really was going on in history at that point? Well, we do know that Zechariah and his contemporary Haggai, they were prophesying to the people of Israel among who were the returned exiles who had come back from Babylon. Now, while this return that had been initiated by King Cyrus, who had overthrown the Babylonians and had started, and also you could say the empire of the Medes and the Persians, you could say, well, this, this was good news because he had allowed Jews to go back to the promised land. You would say, well, the situation was not as good as it may have seemed. Yes, they were back, but, but here they were called the Lord's people, that they could say, well, our Lord, He is the Lord of hosts. He has heavenly armies at His disposal. But really, what, what did you see when you looked at people back in the Promised Land? Only about 50,000 people had returned starting around 536 B.C. And they lived in a tiny territory you know, I, when I was in Orangeville, I compared it to an area in Orangeville to give people a perspective there, but as I thought about it also for here, it seems to me that the territory was about 55 kilometers from north to south and 65 kilometers from east to west. I somehow suspect that is not much different than the territory in which the members of the Church of Owen Sound are living because they can be quite widely scattered around. So picture that, you know, where all your membership is living, that was the total extent of people back in the Promised Land, which had been a glorious land, stretching out far further, of course, in the days of David and Solomon. So you say, well, that, is that really that impressive? They were back, but just a tiny little territory. And then they were in that city of Jerusalem, but there was a pile of ruins around them. At this particular point, all they had done with respect to the temple was really lay the foundation of the temple. They were far from being independent. And then, then the people who lived in the territory around about them, they were always harassing them, making life very difficult. That's why they had also stopped after laying the foundation of opposition, and they stopped because there was so much hostility and nagging by the people around, around about. So, so not, not very promising. Yes, they were back in the Promised Land. Some, most had stayed quite comfortably back in Babylon or wherever they had been resettled. But so here they were. Now, in our reading from Haggai, we learned that Haggai's task as prophet was to call the people to resume the building of the temple. And through him, the Lord also told the people that the reason that they were experiencing poverty and hardship, that was because they had given up on building the temple. They were only looking after their own interests, building their own houses. But God's house, the temple, continued to lay in ruins. And so they experienced that in drought in the land and also whatever money they did, did come in. You know, it's pictured for us almost like someone who says, well, I have holes in my pockets. I put the money in and it disappears just like that. So the Lord said, now get going on rebuilding the temple, and I will bless you. We could also notice that Haggai's preaching had had quite a powerful impact on the people. He, he had spoken, we noticed, on the first day of the sixth month, and talk about 
powerful, effective preaching, you could almost say, by the 24th day of that month, the people were gathered together and they were busy building the temple. Obviously, they had taken his words to heart. Also, if you read further in the prophecies of Haggai, on the 24th day of the ninth month, there, there were further promises, glorious promises, about the coming of God's kingdom. So future glory was waiting from them. Now, it's interesting. If, if Haggai spoke more words to the people, we're not told. From our point of view, you could say Haggai's ministry lasted a total of four months. He probably did more, but this is what the Spirit has preserved for us. Now, important to see this kind of timeline for Haggai's prophecies. We said six months, and chapter 2 talks about the ninth month, because then, then we see that here in this particular time period fit the words of Zechariah. By this point, the people had listened to Haggai's preaching and had begun to work on the temple. So we might say, well, well, all is well. You know, why do you have to send another prophet? Well, obviously, people are responding to Haggai's prompting upon the command of the Lord, of course. Yet, the first recorded prophetic words of Zechariah indicate that all was not well just because outwardly it seemed like people had been kick-started again and things were going well. Because, you see, in the end, the Lord was not just after their hands, who were busy building the temple, but He was after their hearts. Because, you see, repentance is not just a matter of doing the right things, it's above all a matter of the heart. And we hear that in that, that call, return to me. It's a personal thing. Come back to me. Oh, yes, you're so busy doing things, but that doesn't yet mean that your heart is with the Lord. So notice, it's not just a matter of start keeping the commandments again. The Lord wants the heart of His people. And that, of course, has been the message of the Lord repeatedly throughout His dealing with His people. We think of those key words for the people of Israel from Deuteronomy chapter 6. That is sometimes even described as, you could say, the central confession of the people of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. See, first in that list is, with all your heart, your might, that's your hands, you could say, First, that heart and your soul, your inner being. You see, Israel's problem throughout the centuries had been that they had shown plenty of obedience to God's commandments, especially if we think of it in terms of the ceremonies and rituals of the law in worshiping Him. You see that, for example, in Isaiah chapter 1, where the Lord says, yeah, I, I see this steady stream of sacrifices. You bring me all your lambs and your goats and your calves and stuff like that, but the Lord says, basically, I'm sick of it, because your heart is not in it. You see, the service of the Lord had been reduced to there a religious ritual. That's all. Now, of course, we can also pull that through to our own particular time, you know, we can, we can be busy serving the Lord. We can focus a lot on 
the ceremonies of our faith, the rituals. You know, a person can be diligent in attending church twice every Sunday, even not physically possible, virtually possible. You're involved in all kinds of other activities that keep us busy, and we think, well, those are, are important activities, kingdom activities. We spend a lot of energy and money on the education of our children. We set up all kinds of Christian organizations and charities, and, and we're really focused on, on Christian morality. You know, we, we find that particularly important in our time when there is growing immorality, complete contrast to, to the way of the Scriptures. Now, no doubt, these are important expressions of our faith. But we should understand that these are not, we could almost say, of, of the essence of our faith. Because faith is first and foremost a matter of heartfelt love of God because of His gift of salvation. For the Old Testament people, they could think of the Exodus, they could think of the return from the exile. We think of how it all pointed ahead to our liberation from slavery to sin and Satan through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have that, that, that gift of salvation, of forgiveness. Now keep in mind, this is not to, to downplay or to deny the external expressions of our faith, the, the ceremonies, you could say, the rituals and, and the moral dimension of it, but we have to highlight that faith is, first of all, an internal matter, something of the heart. Even if you think of how the Catechism speaks about it. What are good works? Well, must be done out of true faith. That's the first thing, out of true faith. Otherwise, two people can do the same thing, like you could think of Cain and Abel. They were both sacrificing, but Cain's heart wasn't in it. Abel's was. There you see a key difference. So it's not just externals, it must come from a, a genuine, sincere heart. For faith is where we genuinely, you could say, sing our songs that speak of our love for God, our delight in belonging to Him, our joy and our comfort in, in having Jesus as our Redeemer. In this way, you could say it's just like any kind of human relationship. It's not just a matter of what we do for each other. You know, husband and wife, they can do all kinds of things for each other. But it's critical that the spouse sees that this is done from a loving and willing heart. Now, while we do not yet hear mention of God's kingdom at this point, I said overall, Zechariah is going to be pointing towards the coming of God's kingdom. You can, you can see some of that kingdom language already anticipated also in, in the second chapter of Haggai. But what we notice here is that kingdom talk is preceded by the call to the heart to turn to God, to repent. And all this was also expressed, that's why we read together from Matthew chapter 3 in the words of John the Baptist, and also our Lord Jesus Christ, who basically continued in that same theme, you could say, when they both said at the beginning of their ministry, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And this was not just a matter of changing behavior. You could say that that was not really the problem, even for the people of Israel. They were meticulous in their behavior. 
They went over the top even, you could say. So the problem was not that they were not keeping the externals of the faith, but the problem was that the heart was not in it. It was not done from genuine faith. Or you could say, out of fear, or for the Pharisees to try and win a reputation for themselves. But the way to prepare for the kingdom of God is to turn the heart to God. And this message was underlined with a warning. And that's our second point. Now we can see that Zechariah's call to turn to God is embedded in, in rather an extensive reference to the fathers, that is, their ancestors. In verse 2, he already mentioned how God was angry with them. And in verse 4 to 6, he elaborates on, on the experience of the fathers with the exhortation, basically, do not be like them. Now, we should note how, how exactly the fathers are turned into a warning. It is in the ways that they rejected the cries of the prophets that God had sent them as these prophets were calling them to repent from their evil deeds and evil ways. You know, that was the general task of prophets, not, not so much to foretell the future. Yes, that aspect would be there at times too when they had prophecies about God's kingdom and the coming Messiah. But, but a prophet was basically the one sent by God to call people to repent, to go back to the way that they had been taught in the laws of Moses. So we have a reminder here, and this, this reference to the fathers of the sordid history of Israel's unfaithfulness. Really, you know, you, you think of they came to the promised land, Joshua concludes, Joshua calls the people to, to serve the Lord, says, I'm going to serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, calls the people to do the same, and they're all very positive and optimistic. You turn the page to Judges, and it's downhill at a very rapid rate. By the time the book of Judges concludes, you know, you get some very sordid stories of the people, of what happened among the people of Israel, and that cry also there. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king in Israel. So, and then it keeps on going from Judges all the way to Jeremiah. I picked Jeremiah because he's the last major prophet in the time period leading up to the exile. And he actually lived when the city was destroyed and people were taken into exile and Jeremiah and some others were allowed to remain behind. But, but the common thing is Israel did not want to listen to the Lord. Now the Lord reminded them, if you do not listen to my, my word, there are the covenant blessings, but there's also the covenant curses, and the covenant curses will come true. Now we do have to note, of course, the Lord showed a tremendous amount of patience with his people. If you think the Exodus was about 1420 B.C., then by the time the exile came, 586 B.C., more than 800 years, the Lord patiently put up with his people and their sinning, calling them to repentance, giving plenty of opportunity. But eventually, though, his patience ran out. And so through Zechariah, he asked, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Now, when he asked, where are they? That was more than a rhetorical question. It was more than referring to the way that the previous generations had died. 
It was a reference to the way their refusal to repent and turn to God had resulted in them being exiled. So where are they? Well, our forefathers went into exile. Many of them died on the way there. Now we have, we have here kind of a, a sense of those billboards that you see sometimes along the road. You know that some organization puts up billboards with Bible texts, and usually, of course, they, they, they put them in King James language. So it says something like, Thy sins shall find thee out. Actually, is a quote from Numbers 32, verse 23, where Moses told the tribes of Reuben and Gad, who were going to stay on the east side of the Jordan, if you do not come and help your brothers conquer the rest of the land, you know, the Lord is going to punish you. Your sins will find you out. So, eventually, your deeds are going to catch up with you. In this case, God's words had come to punish people, the people of Israel. Their deeds had, were catching up to them, and the picture even here is like a hunter chasing after the prey. The prey can keep on running, but eventually they're caught. Well, the Lord caught up with his people, and he had punished them severely. Now, all this impressed upon Zechariah's hearers that God's words should not be taken as empty threats. For when God threatens punishment for rejecting him, that punishment will come, even though the people had lived in a state of denial. It's actually remarkable, you know, there are so many indications, even in the time of Jeremiah, when you could say they could already see the clouds of dust from the Babylonian armies on the horizon, and a few times they even had, had been besieged by the Babylonian armies, but they somehow thought, it's not going to happen to us, you know, we're, we're covenant people, we're kind of immune. You might be familiar with the way they said, you find this in chapter 7 of Jeremiah, that they had almost like, like a talisman, like a lucky charm. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. That's what they said three times, as if that was their guarantee. All the Babylonians could come to the gates of Jerusalem, but they could never conquer it because they had the temple of the Lord. You see, they, they just didn't get it. And even when the first waves of exile had gone, they still lived in a state of denial. You might be familiar with the words of Jeremiah 29 when he has to send a letter to the exiles telling them, don't listen to the false prophets because there were false prophets who basically said, don't even bother unpacking. Within two years' time, you're going to go back. And then Jeremiah had to say, no, settle down. Get married, start your businesses, raise families, seek the welfare of the city where the Lord God has placed you because you're going to be there for 70 years, you see. But the people just didn't get it. They just lived in denial that God was going to punish his people, though all the evidence was there. God does not other empty threats. Now, when we read in verse 6 that the forefathers repented and said, as the Lord of hosts has purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us, it comes out that eventually they realized God followed through on his threats. But their repentance, you could say, at that particular point was too little and too late to avert the exile because that lesson finally sunk in once they were in exile. But they'd finally caught on. You see that also, for example, in the book of Lamentations, you know, written after the fall of Jerusalem, written by Jeremiah. And then, for example, in Lamentation 1, verse 18, we read, The Lord is in his right, for I have rebelled against his word, 
but hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. Or we think of Lamentations 3, verse 40 to 42, that same passage that has that beautiful words about God's mercies being new every morning. But there it also reads, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hand to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You see, they finally caught on. Yes, God does punish stubborn and disobedient people. Therefore, there's a powerful warning in God's dealing with the previous generations. Now, we can call this the lesson of history. It comes down to this. If you do not turn to God, you will not get away with it. Your sins will find you out. Because God is not only in the blessing business, but He is also in the cursing business, you could say, for those who defy Him and His calls to repent. It should have been obvious from the days of our first parents, you could say, when they sinned. God didn't say, oh well, you know, let's just try again. No. The punishment He threatened came to be. It should have been obvious in the days of Noah. The Lord was not going to put up with the rebelliousness of the population of the earth or in the turning of Sodom and Gomorrah upside down. And it was obvious in the exile where he punished his chosen people. They are not exempt. Also to this day, no one is exempt, brothers and sisters. If we defy the Lord, we're not exempt from that either. We can't say, well, we're covenant people. Well, we should know better. Covenant blessings, but also covenant curses. The lesson is also taught in, Psalm 50, in the Psalms. We think of Psalm 78. We sang a few stanzas. Beautiful psalm that parents are instructed to teach their children about the mighty deeds of the Lord, His saving deeds and His commands, calling the children to place their trust in the Lord. And that really in Psalm 78, the book of the psalm is a long history lesson. Reminder of what God had done to save His people, rebellious people, gracious God, rebellious people, gracious God, kind of goes back and forth. But the point is, don't repeat the sins of your forefathers and the terrible consequences. Think also of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, where he indicates that Israel's experience in the wilderness, where the Lord punished them for their stubbornness and rebellion, was a warning for the New Testament church too. Now God has preserved His word to Zechariah, not just for our curiosity. Rather, God continues to speak to us through His word. We've, of course, seen some of the implications and applications already, but we see it even further when we consider the permanence of this call. And that's our last point. Now, we should realize, brothers and sisters, that the call to return to God is a call that comes to each and every generation that comes through all those generations, from the Exodus to the exile, it came to the generation of Zechariah's days, came to the generation at the time of John the Baptist, 
and also when the Lord Jesus Christ ministered. But even more, it comes to each person each day. It comes to each of us every day. Because faith is a, is a dynamic thing. It's a living thing. It's like any other important relationship in life, like marriage. You know, imagine if a husband said to his wife, and she was wondering whether he still loved her. He said, well, don't you remember when we got married, I said, I loved you, and I promised that I would do all these things. No wife is going to be happy with that. that the husband is sim simply going to refer to that one time he might have said he loved her on the day of her wedding, their wedding. No, that is to be there daily, a daily reassurance of love and care and commitment to one another. Can you imagine if we approached our relationship with the Lord that way? If we said to the Lord, yeah, you know, Lord, I'm a profession of faith. I said I loved you. I would serve you. I would walk in your way. So why do you want me to hear you may say it again? Why do you want me to sing songs all the time? Why do you have to come to church all the time? Why really is that important? Didn't I say I loved you? I wasn't done enough. That's not how it is. The relationship is a living thing, a daily indication of love and commitment. It's important, brothers and sisters. You know, you just can't coast on, on, on one event in the past, or even we can't coast on the fact that, that we could say, yes, but I, I'm very active in church life. The Lord says, yeah, but do you love me? Is your heart with me? That's what the Lord's looking for. Not just the externals. Yes, that too. But the externals without the heart, forget about it. Just like the Lord said about the sacrifices. You can keep them. I don't want them. I want your heart first. Then the other things become an expression of that heart. So that permanent call, permanent call for each of us, each day. You know, it can be captured in a phrase you might have heard, semper reformanda. It's always reforming. Actually, a phrase that's not a phrase that is suggesting we should always be changing things. That's not the point. No. It reminds us that, that reformation is not a static thing where, where we can say, well, we're going to coast on the decisions of the past, and our Father's got it all right, and that's good enough. Our Father's got it all right, and we're going to kind of hold the faith. We, we say, yeah, the faith of our fathers. Well, the faith of our fathers be, better become our faith. That's always reforming, appropriating the faith of the previous generations, making it our own, and every day again, embracing that faith that we love the Lord, that we seek to serve Him with a thankful heart. Otherwise, you end up with dead orthodoxy or formalism. No different than what was found among the generation leading up to the exile. So always reforming has to do with always turning your heart again to God in faith, in trust, in loyalty, in a living relationship with Him. You see, Zechariah's generation had to hear that lest they would be thinking, okay, well, you know, we are really committed. We left behind probably a relatively comfortable life that had been established in Babylon. We packed everything up. We came back here to Israel, and we come into poverty and want and shortcomings. But at least we're back, not like the ones who stayed behind. And we at least have begun to rebuild the temple. Look, look, that's really good, isn't it? That's just externalism. But faith is first internal. Because without heartfelt turning, there is no way into the kingdom. Now in the chapters to come, Zechariah's prophecies will expand on that kingdom of God and the way it is coming. 
But what his opening message impresses upon us, though, is that we are one is to truly learn about the kingdom and to find his way and his place in the kingdom, there is a need to live a repentant life, one where one is always turning again to the God of our salvation. And then, you're not only busy every week again learning about the kingdom, but you realize, I am already in the kingdom, and we're learning about the kingdom as citizens of the kingdom, and we can look forward to the coming of the kingdom in its fullness. Amen.